Let's open to the book of Revelation. We're still in chapter 1. I had said we'd be in the book for a year, but who knows? Uh, Last week we started a sermon and got halfway through it and quit at about 30 minutes. Today we're going to pick up the second half. And I endeavored to just kind of surf all week and let the second half be the second week and not work on it or let it be the second half, but I couldn't help myself. So don't expect that it's a quick little, you know, the other part of the 30-minute sermon. It's going to be a long one today, and it's going to require that you think a little bit, okay, that you think biblically, think about Scripture, think about what it says. So if you weren't here last week, you want to get that message. This is part two from last week. Last week, we looked at uh, verses 7 and 8, and we looked at them closely. We pretty much examined every single word in there. We'll read those passages, and the, or those verses, and then we'll get to it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he, speaking of Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word that reveals to us truth. Absolute truth and nothing but the truth. And we just want to be people who don't just hear the word and move on. We want to be people who are profoundly affected by the truth of your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we invite you here, Holy Spirit, to move in our minds, to move in our hearts, to move in our thoughts, feelings, and actions concerning the truth of your word. Your word says, Jesus, that you're coming again to establish a righteous reign on earth. And we want to be people who are living in light of that right now. And so help us with that, Lord. Give us understanding. Please, Holy Spirit, exalt Jesus and the truth about him in our hearts and minds. We confess that we are worried and bothered and distracted about so many things. But we want to be all about Jesus and his glory and his wonderful continuing work. So please anoint me now, please God, to teach and preach in a way that gives itself to that end. And please teach us to be obedient and faithful to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask it in that name. Amen. Well, again, last week we looked at verses 7 and 8 very carefully, so we're not really going to recover those verses. We're just going to talk generally about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that came up for the first time in the book of Revelation there in verse 7. And verse 7 is seen by many as being the theme verse of the book of Revelation. We talked about in our introductory sermons that the book of Revelation is about Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the key element that's communicated in the book of Revelation about Jesus is that he is coming again to establish his righteous reign on earth and to undo, to make right everything that has gone wrong, to judge the quick and the dead, to establish a fullness of his kingdom and create a new heaven and a new earth. And that claim is so astounding that in verse 8 we talked about last week, the father puts his stamp of approval on that. The father puts the sum total of his identity and his character on that claim that Jesus is coming again. And what we learned last week is that it's quite different from the first coming. You'll remember that we had a chart that contrasted the first and the second coming of Jesus. They're different in their attitude. The first coming was lowly. The second coming will be glorious. They're different in their goal. The first coming was to uh, bring salvation to the world. The second coming is to bring the full effects of that salvation and judgment to the world. We talked about the fact that the second coming of Jesus Christ is, listen to me now, essential Christian truth. It is essential Christian doctrine. It's not a secondary issue. It is secondary as to when it may happen and a lot of the details of end times. We can talk about and argue about that and debate that back and forth forever. But it is essential that Jesus Christ is coming again, right? Essential Christian truth is that Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, and he's coming again. And all of that is included in the gospel. Now, where we left it last week 
was with three questions that should have really entered into our minds as we move through the text, and three questions that are essential to address in our study of the second coming. The first one is, is it literal? Is the second coming of Jesus Christ a literal thing? I mean, is he really physically coming to earth? The second question, and this is what we all want to know, is when will it happen? That's really what we want to know. Britt, spare me the details. Tell me when it's going to happen. And the third question is, what happens after that? We don't often give a ton of thought to that, but the Bible has much to say about it. So the first question, is the second coming a literal event? Here's why I think it's worth asking and worth addressing biblically. Because I think if we're to be honest, it can be hard sometimes to believe that Jesus is really coming again physically to the earth. You know, when we're 2,000 years removed and we see the historical evidence of his first coming, it's easier for us to say, yes, he came. That's, that's, that's abundantly clear. He came. He died in atoning death on the cross. He even rose from the dead and ascended unto heaven. But in our modern world now, as it is, he's actually going to come again visibly, physically, and be on earth, rule and reign from Jerusalem, recreate everything, a new heaven and new earth, our minds, radically formed by Western rationalism, can have a hard time wrapping themselves around that truth. I understand that. It can be hard for us to believe. It should bolster our faith to realize that there are 535 verses in the Bible that speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ. 535 direct references to Christ coming again in Scripture. What that means is for the serious student of the Bible, for the Christian who's endeavoring to be faithful to Christian truth, we must take it seriously. We have to. We can't discount it at the altar of Western rationalism. We can't discount it because it would be, and it would be miraculous. So was the resurrection. So was the atoning work work of Christ on the cross. So was the virgin birth. So is his perfect life. All of this stuff, Christianity is miraculous. And the second coming will be miraculous. It will be mind-blowing. It can be hard to lay hold of, but 535 verses at least in the Bible that speak about it. So it must be taken seriously. And the argument that I'll forward in the next couple of minutes before we get to the second point is this. And it must be taken literally. It must be taken literally not a spiritual return, not a series of returns as he ministers to his church, but a literal, physical, historical return to earth. Here's how we might think about this. Consider how the predictions of the first coming of Jesus Christ that we see in the Old Testament were fulfilled. Okay, there's hundreds of them. We'll look at a few. For example, Isaiah 7:14, and says, "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign.'" Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Right? So there's a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus Christ about his coming. Now, how was it fulfilled? It was literally and historically fulfilled. Jesus was born to a virgin. Again, a miracle, a far-off prediction that would have seemed hard to lay hold of, but it happened historically and literally. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel, speaking of the Messiah. His goings forth are from long ago, speaking of his preexistence, the eternal nature of Christ, from the days of eternity. Again, a literal historical fulfillment. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even so a colt, the foal of a donkey. How is that fulfilled? A literal, historical fulfillment. Jesus entered Jerusalem at the triumphal entry on a donkey, presented to the nation as a Messiah, as the Messiah, excuse me. Psalm 22. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, about 700 years before the cross. 
For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, a literal historical fulfillment. Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross. None of his bones were broken, even though those criminals crucified with him had broken bones. And the soldiers cast lot for his clothing. One last one, Psalm 16, verse 10. About the Messiah, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. How was it fulfilled? A literal historical fulfillment and that Jesus the Messiah was resurrected from the dead and his body did not undergo decay. So these predictions, I want us to think logically now about the first coming of Jesus Christ and hundreds more were fulfilled historically and literally during the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it stands to reason then that the second coming and the prophecies about it will be fulfilled literally in history, in our world, in the time-space continuum. This is how scripture works. And though the book of Revelation uses a whole lot of symbolism as we spoke of, and we'll try to wade our way through that, it's symbolism that speaks of a literal truth, the return of Christ to establish his righteous rule in the world. You see, so it's responsible, it's reasonable, it's logical, it's biblically faithful to look at the way that scripture works, progressive and predictive prophecy, and to say, okay, it seems to me then an objective view that these predictions about his second coming are going to be fulfilled literally. Well, let's just take Jesus's word for it. He seemed to allude to this very thing in John's gospel, chapter 14, verses one through three. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Look what he says here. If I go, an if then statement, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, if I go, then I will return. Did Jesus go? Yes, he ascended unto heaven. We know that. How did he go? Literally, physically ascended unto heaven. If I go, I will come back. How did he go? Literally and physically, he'll come back in the same way would stand a reason. Jesus is saying, The angels corroborated this at the event of the ascension in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up. Here's the ascension. While they, the disciples, were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, angels, stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You see that? Jesus talking about it, the angels talking about it, the Old Testament talking about it, the New Testament talking about it. So you really would have to work hard to spiritualize the issue. You'd really have to work hard to somehow dismiss a literal physical second coming of Jesus. You would really have to dismiss scripture and the way that it appears to work, right? How did Jesus come and go the first time? Literally and physically. How will Jesus come the second time? Literally and physically. What that means is hooray. What that is, is good news, because much has gone wrong in the world. And sometimes we feel alone. And sometimes we feel like victims of the course of history and the powers of history and the evil of the present age. But scripture tells us that's not true. 
that just as Jesus came to Israel as a deliverer, he is coming to the whole world as a great and glorious judge who will set right everything that has gone wrong. And so the heart of the Christian is bolstered. The mind of the Christian is settled. The faith of the Christian is sure. And so we have hope and joy in the midst of a world that can sometimes be scary. Amen? Point number two then. When will the second coming happen? This is really what we want to know. We believe that it's literal and physical. We want to know when. Well, the disciples wanted to know the same thing. And in Matthew chapter 24, they asked him, they said, Jesus, what will be the signs of your second coming? When's it going to take place? And Jesus in Matthew 24 gave them a series of general signs that would be prevalent in the end times. If you're familiar with Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, he said there'd be a lot of deception in the end times. He said that there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said there'd be famines, pestilences, earthquakes. He said there would be tremendous persecution during that time. Have you read the news lately? tremendous persecution of Christians during that time. He said that the gospel would be preached to all the earth. And then we'd be getting down to the nitty gritty. And then he said this about the timing of his second coming, Matthew 24. He said, then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. But immediately after the tribulation, do you see this chronological language? Then there will be, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This appears to be, we talked about a lot of those details last week, but this appears to be chronological language, right? Then there will be a great tribulation, which would have been preceded by general signs, as we mentioned. Immediately after the tribulation, there's some cataclysmic events that we'll talk about in our coming studies, what those might be. But then he says, and then the coming of the Son of Man will take place. The outline that Jesus gives us in Matthew 24 seems to be consonant with, consistent with the outline of the book of Revelation, right? In the book of Revelation, as we've spoken about, in chapter 6 through 18, we see the tribulation period that Jesus spoke about. Then there will be a great tribulation, chapter 6 through 18 in Revelation. And then when we get to chapter 19, we have the second coming displayed to us in that chapter. So let's turn now to chapter 19 of Revelation and observe that. How's the temperature in here? You guys okay? I am hotter than a dog in the south. Is the... uh, General fan on, Bill, is the fan on? Revelation chapter 19, starting verse 11. Don't worry about me. You guys be comfortable. I'm fine. (laughs) Revelation 19, starting verse 11. John writes and says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Here in Carpinteria, we call it Cavallo Blanco. That's Spanish. (laughs) And behold, Cavallo Blanco. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Who are we talking about? And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Here we go with some symbolism. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. Don't know what that means. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Again, symbolism talking about his work. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine white linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. Now, I wonder who that might be. Go up to verse 7. Verse 7. It says there, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride of Jesus? The church. You guys are doing very well. Verse eight, and it was given to her. Look how we're dressed in heaven. 
to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. So, again, verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds really cool. (laughs) However you take it, Jesus on Cavallo Blanco, us all dressed in white coming with him. This can't be bad. This is exciting. And then it says, verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he might smite the nations. Okay, now we're talking about the battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to when we get to chapter 16. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Talking about last day's powers gathered against Christ. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, now, many questions there. More questions coming into your mind than answers. We'll get there, okay? When we get to chapter 19 in about 19 years, we'll get there. (laughs) The salient point this morning is that Jesus is portrayed as fulfilling all the hundreds of prophecies, returning to earth in victory. He's waging war, righteousness. He's judging. He's conquering over evil, the beast and the false prophet and all the forces gathered against righteousness. Jesus comes in victory to establish his righteous reign on the earth. And our salient point for this point, when does it occur, is that it seems to happen from what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and from what we have in the book of Revelation after the great tribulation. That seems to jibe with the way that Jesus spoke of it. Now, what that means then is that the coming of Jesus, pictured here in Revelation 19, is at least a few years away. Because unless I'm missing something, and I very well may be. Listen, eschatology, study of the end times, is difficult. Okay, anyone who says, this is apt, I, got, I, I nailed this thing, my way is the only way, I, I would be wary. But I will suggest to you that unless I'm missing something, we have not entered the tribulation period yet. Which possibly, depending on your interpretation, is a seven-year period of time where the wrath of God is poured out on earth simultaneously with the work of the Antichrist and the wrath of the enemy, Satan poured out on the earth. A very difficult time, but at least a seven-year period of time. And unless I'm missing something in my interpretive framework, we've not entered the tribulation period yet. Jesus said, after the great tribulation, I'll come back. Tribulation ends in chapter 18. Here comes Jesus in chapter 19. So it would seem that the second coming of Jesus Christ is at least seven years away. Is that making sense so far? That's not a lot of yeses. Is that making sense so far? I'm not necessarily asking if you agree with my interpretation, but am I making sense? Okay, excellent. This creates a problem, okay? What about all the times that we have the New Testament Christ included saying things like, no one knows the day nor the hour. The coming of the Son of Man will be like a thief in the night. What about all of these verses in the New Testament that seem to say it could occur at any moment? But we just got somewhat of a clear chronology from Christ and from the book of Revelation. There are 49 verses, at least in the New Testament, that seem to say that the coming of Jesus Christ is imminent, meaning it may happen at any moment, and so be ready. 
Now we have a little bit of a problem. Jesus talks about this, the fact that it's imminent. And Luke, if you want to keep a finger or some sort of marker in uh, Revelation 19, go to Luke 12. Luke chapter 12. I've got to go there very quickly. Luke chapter 12. Jesus speaking of these things in verse 35 says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open to the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Okay, you see, you, you see the problem there? So if we, if we only look at the second coming and we have this chronology of the great tribulation happening first, then we, we, we get pretty clear on when this is coming. So it'd be hard to be ready right now and be like, ah, tribulation hasn't even started. Why should we live in readiness? But Jesus is exhorting us to live in readiness. It seems that Jesus says both. He seems to give us some sort of chronology with signs, general signs and specific signs that precede it there in Matthew 24. And he seems to say that he's coming at an unexpected time, that his coming is imminent. It's a very important word, okay? Imminent. It means about to happen, may occur at any time, right? The end of this sermon is not imminent, It's going to be some time still yet. But Jesus seemed to teach that his second coming, which may rescue you from the sermon, is imminent. It can occur at any time. We have in scripture the doctrine of imminency. Here's the problem. Why in the New Testament do we see a second coming that is preceded by general and specific events and signs and are told that it may take place at any moment. For the answer to this, I believe, turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Remember all the T's are together in the New Testament. If you find Timothy, you'll find Thessalonians. Look for Timothy, you'll find Thessalonians. Thessalonians comes before Timothy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 13, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, okay, ignorant. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Asleep was a first century euphemism for Christians who had died, okay, because it was different than the world esteems death. So that's what he's talking about, okay, for those who have died. That you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. There's something coming for the dead in Christ that causes us to have a certain kind of hope and that we don't grieve the same way. What is this? Verse 14. For if, here's an if then again, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe that? Okay. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, Christians who have died. If we believe Christian doctrine that Jesus died and was resurrected, we also believe Christian doctrine that at some time Christ is bringing with him Christians who have died. This is crazy. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul says, I'm not making this stuff up, man. That we, notice we, Okay, what he's about to talk to, he expected to happen in his lifetime. Doctrine of imminence. He took it the right way. 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay, this is talking about the resurrection of Christians who have died in Christ to the glorified body. The dead in Christ shall rise first. This is all happening at the trumpet, the shout of the angel. Verse 17, then, chronological language, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo in the Greek, snatched away. Raptus in the Latin. It's where we get our word rapture. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Christians who have died in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Okay. This is interesting. So the scripture says, as sure as Christ died and rose from the dead, there's coming a day where he will bring with him those who have died in Christ where they will be resurrected at the trump of God, at the, at the shout of my, Michael the archangel, and that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to meet Jesus in the clouds. Western rationalism saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Holy scripture of God saying, yes, 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 yes. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We also get this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Paul writes again and says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. The definition of a mystery in the New Testament is something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is made clear in the New. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It doesn't mean that it's unknowable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. He's saying some Christians will be alive when this happens and will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, new glorified bodies, and we will be changed. That's known theologically as translation. Okay, the dead in Christ are raised into their glorified bodies at this event. We who are alive and remain when this is happening are caught up in the sky to meet the Lord and we are translated. That's the time when we receive our glorified bodies as promised by scripture. This is radical. And this seems to be unique. These passages seem to speak of an event that is somewhat different in nature than the second coming that we read in Revelation chapter 19. First of all, it's clear that Paul believed it was imminent. We who are alive and remain, he expected this to happen in his lifetime, as should we. It was imminent. This is called the rapture. Again, from the word caught up, harpazo in the Greek. Here's a couple of key elements as to the differences between these two events, okay? The event described in Revelation 19, as we read, is a movement of Christ from heaven to earth with those who are his. We saw that, right? To establish his kingdom on earth. The event described in Revelation 19 is a movement... uh, Take that off, please. Too soon. Thank you. Oh, you can't back up. Okay. Oh, this is fun. Okay. The event described in Revelation 19 is a movement of Christ from heaven to earth with those who are his. That's what we read in Revelation 19. What we just read about now, cue it. The event mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is a movement from earth to heaven. Did you catch that? Of Christ's people to be with him in heaven. These are two different things. Two unique events. Let's contrast them. The contrast of the rapture and the second coming. Okay, first of all, concerning the rapture, go ahead. Translation of all believers is what we saw in those passages. Glorified bodies, right, when it happens. No translation in the second coming. We're already glorified in heaven. Next. Translated believers go to heaven, caught up in the sky to meet the Lord there in the clouds. It said, translated believers return to earth. We saw that in Revelation 19. Christ comes for his own in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15. Christ comes with his own in Revelation 19. 
The rapture appears to be imminent. Talk about the doctrine of imminence. The second coming appears to be preceded by definite signs. Okay. When does this happen? There's a couple possibilities. There is the post-tribulation view of the rapture of the church, which would mean essentially that it happens at the same time as what we read in Revelation 19. And that's possible. Then they're not so different. They're just two phases of the same event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right? That, that makes sense. So the, the Michael the archangel shouts, there's the trump of God. The dead in Christ are raised. We're translated, caught up in the sky to meet Jesus. And then we hang a U-turn and we come back with him to earth. But some, I'm not meaning that as a joke. And then, but at some point, there's a marriage supper of the lamb that we read about. So it's possible that they occur at the same time. What that makes difficult though, is the doctrine of imminency. It doesn't really allow us to make sense of all the time that Jesus said, be ready because you don't know when. Because the tribulation is going to have some real clear signs. So then there is the pre-tribulation view. There's also the pre-wrath view, but we won't really deal with that. But both of these preserve eminence. And it means that this event that we just read about happens before the tribulation period. It means that it is imminent. It means that it may happen at any moment that Jesus comes to catch up his church. This is a fulfillment, I think, of what Jesus said in John 14. If I go, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back for you that where I am, there you may be also. Where, where was he? In my father's house are many dwelling places. Seems to be talking about the church going to heaven. Now, I'm going to try to make it visual for you. Can you see the chalkboard here? I've never done this before. <laughs> a decade of church, I've never done this. So let's, let's see how this goes. little timeline of the two possibilities. Okay, we'll draw a cross to represent the time of Jesus, a squiggly line to represent an undetermined period of time. Okay, we'll put a big C here, which represents the church age, the time in which we're living. A pre-tribulation view of the rapture would say this, that there's coming a moment and it may be any moment when Michael the archangel will shout and there'll be the trump of God and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky. The dead in Christ shall be raised, right? The rapture. So that's an upward movement. Does that look like an arrow? That's an upward movement. And then after that pre-tribulation view would come the seven-year period of the tribulation. And then after that, what we read in Revelation 19, a downward movement, Jesus coming to earth with us to establish his kingdom. Okay, that would be the pre-trib view of the rapture. Can you see that? Is that awesome? Okay. And then we have the other view. Same sort of stuff here, right? Again, we have the church represented by this undetermined period of time, the church age. And then what we'd have in the post-tribulation view is at some point, the tribulation starts to happen. And then simultaneously, we have the upward movement of the church to meet the Lord in the sky. And then the downward movement after the marriage supper of the lamb that we read about in Revelation 19 to establish the kingdom. That's the post-trib view. Now, which view is correct? Wonderful, wonderful Christians on both ends of the debate. There's also a pre-wrath view that says it happens in the middle of the tribulation period. It's a good one, but we don't have time right now. (laughs) Wonderful Christians that would hold to both. What do I think, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) I think that the doctrine of imminency is important and inescapable in the New Testament. And I think that we have a pre-tribulation rapture. I think it for a few reasons. Remember back in Revelation 19, we read about us there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was a church. It was a bride of Christ. Well, before the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're already pictured in heaven. His bride is there. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the consummation ceremony. It's this glorious event that takes place before the second coming. So we're already there in heaven. 
Now, granted, it may be that it happened like this. We were caught up. We're in heaven. Enough time for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we come back and Christ establishes kingdom, which we'll get to in a moment. But I think for some reasons that we'll see right now in a couple of verses in 1 Thessalonians, that it's before the tribulation period, which is, again, primarily the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world. Why do I think that? Look in Revelation, uh, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us to wait for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll see over and over again when we study the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 6 through 18 that it is called over and over again the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God on an unrepentant world. Notice what it says about His Son. Wait for His Son to come from heaven who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Now look at chapter 5, verse 9, which says this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right after talking about that event where we're caught up in the sky to meet him. In my estimation, this seems to point toward a glorious truth. That the book of Titus calls our blessed hope. That before all hell breaks loose on earth, we who belong to Jesus Christ will be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord in the clouds and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words, Paul says. This is meant to be a glorious home whenever you see it taking place. But I think that it takes place before the tribulation. Are you guys still with me? Okay. Now we can debate this back and forth. This is not an issue of dogma. This is nothing we would ever separate over, right? If you come and you say, Brett, you're crazy, dude. I'm totally post-trib. What I'm going to say to you is, well, then leave the church, dude. Don't even want you here. I'm not going to say that. I would never say that. This is not something to divide over. If you came to me and you said, Jesus is not the Messiah. He wasn't born of a virgin. He didn't live a perfect life. He didn't die an atoning death upon the cross and he didn't raise from the dead and he's not coming again. I would say, We believe very different things. (laughs) So you neither now should you say, oh my gosh, Britt thinks it's this way and I think it that's way. I'm out of here. Don't do that. That would be ridiculous. We don't divide upon this kind of stuff. Listen, end time stuff can be difficult to discern. Imagine if you didn't have the New Testament and you were back in the Old Testament period and you were reading all the promises about Christ's first coming. It would have been difficult from Isaiah and the Psalms and Hosea and Micah and all these different places to put together a perfect chronology of the first coming of Jesus Christ, right? That would have been tremendously difficult. There would have been all these debates, In hindsight, we read it with the interpretive lens of the New Testament. We're like, oh, it makes so much sense. We're talking about stuff that's in the future. And sometimes it's difficult to discern. But we're trying to do our very best here. And I think it's fun. And I think it gives us hope. The salient point is that there seems to be a difference between the rapture and the second coming. The purpose of the rapture is to take the church out of the world and bring them to the Father's house. The purpose of the second coming is to establish Christ's physical and visible kingdom on earth. Now, what we often do in our language, and I do this as well, is we collapse them all into this phrase, when the Lord comes again, or the second coming. We just sort of collapse them into, our, into that single phrase, and a lot of people do it. If we're being theologically careful and we're having real discussions about end times, then we might say things like, when the rapture of the church occurs and then the tribulation period and then when the Lord comes again. We might tease those things out as we're doing now, but often we just collapse it into our language of Jesus coming again. But technically they're different. Let me make it clear. We are not saying, this is not what theology says, this is not the language that we use, that there are two second comings. That's not what we're saying. There is the rapture of the church and the coming of Christ to earth. When it occurs is open to debate. 
Okay, but we're not saying that there are two comings. There is, as far as in the end times, there's a first coming of Jesus Christ when he came to die on the cross and rose from the dead. There is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, here's what's happening. We're 45 minutes in, and I'm two-thirds of the way through. So I'm going to finish right here, and we're going to have part three. Are you cool with that? Okay. But to end, I want us to turn to 1 Peter. Okay, this is where we'll end. We'll see what good old Pete had to say about these things. This passage that we're going to read right now in, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3 is going to create some questions. We'll get to them in time. But I want us to just to see how this ought to affect the way that we live. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 3, this is where we're ending. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I think it's helpful in a wordy passage like this. Peter writes and says in 2 Peter 3, 1, This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. He's reminding us of doctrine. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. See that combination? It's about their desires. They're mocking the truth. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Peter said, in the last days, there's going to be people who want to live the way they want to live. And they're going to dismiss the idea of Jesus coming again to establish his righteous rule. And they'll say, nothing has ever changed. The world's just going on. What is this thing about Jesus coming again? Verse five. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command. Notice deliberately forget. They dismiss the doctrine of creation. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Judgment of God being brought to mind. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. Fire is a picture of judgment, okay? They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. He's talking about the judgment of God. Verse 8, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Do you get that? God does not want anyone to be destroyed, but for everyone to repent. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord, which is a phrase used to talk about this whole end time thing. The day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. There it is again. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. This is speaking about judgment. We'll get to it next week. And the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Once and for all, what's right and what's wrong is going to be settled. No moral relativism at this time. Verse 11. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, speaking of judgment, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to, okay, eminence here, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away with flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, in light of that, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure 
and blameless in his sight. And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. You know what that tells us? In light of all this stuff about Christ's coming, no matter how you see it unfolding, we ought to be full of hope that God's righteousness will fill the world one day. We ought to be pursuing sanctification. He's coming to judge sin, so let's not be fooling around with sin. And we ought to be living lives on mission. That's how we hasten or hurry the day. Why hasn't he come yet? Because there are your family members, your friends, your co-workers, people in our community and the nations that he's waiting to get saved. So preach the gospel. Give your lives to preach the gospel. What does it mean to be faithful to the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ? To have great hope because his righteousness will fill the world. To live in purity because he's the righteous judge. And to preach the gospel because he's coming again and desires that none would perish, but all would be saved. What will you do with your life? The time that we have is finite. It's limited. Your life matters to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Live it faithfully by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Lord, help us with these things. Please, God, help us with these things. Oh, Lord, make them clear. I hope I haven't in my sermon in any way confused stuff, Lord, but I hope that by your Holy Spirit, you would just narrow it down to the fact that you are good and wonderful and you're coming again to set things right and we ought to live in light of that. So show us, Lord, areas where we need to repent of sin. Show us, Lord, where we need to get over ourselves and be on mission. And give us great hope where we're suffering, where we're fearful, where we're unsure. Thank you for these glorious truths. Make us be those that you spoke of, Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, who are ready when their master comes. Brothers and sisters, don't let church be anything else than very real to you. If repentance is what's called for today, if you need to repent of some stuff, repent. If you need to pray for unction, empowering on high from the Holy Spirit to live a faithful life on mission, pray for that. If you need to make some real decisions today that will change the course of your life in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, then do that. There'll be some prayer team up here. Communion is here. The carpets are here. Let's pursue Jesus.